Welcome to uh, week three of Revelation and the End Times. We are looking at chapter two today, and we will get through close to three letters of the seven different letters to the seven churches. So God bless and look forward to being with you. Okay, well, welcome everybody to our third week of Revelation and the end times. Look forward to uh, today. Our goal today and next week will be to basically get through chapters two and chapters three. So that's important that we do that. Um, anyway. So we had a little bit of a study this morning with the men and we had a lot of good conversation going and, and we do some prayer requests at the beginning of that study. So we didn't get quite as far as what we wanted to, but we'll probably get through most of chapter two today. Um, so let's start with a prayer and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to study your holy word. Today we will be confronted with some, some lessons, some words, some spiritual truths that you have spoken to churches and individuals who followed you uh, close to 2,000 years ago, and they are still relevant to us today. So I ask that you speak into our hearts and our lives and stir our hearts and stir our minds to continue to follow you more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, welcome to week three of Revelation and the End Times. Let's get started with chapter two. I have an opening question just to think about as we move into chapter two is, do you feel like you can understand where we're going? Do you, do you feel like, I mean, we've only been through one chapter, but really think about, this is not as big a mystery as we think, and especially as a lot of times we, we think Revelation is totally a mystery to us. I think we have a firm grasp on who is speaking, who, who Jesus is, um, who John is, what's going on, and so I think that's very important for us to uh, continue to think about as we move through chapters two and chapter three and how very relevant it is to us and, and how it's not so much of a mystery. Now, there are some things that we're going we're gonna to look at and I'm going to throw my commentary towards or I'm po possibly going to offer my own personal opinion and you can offer yours, but I think we're going to see, again, some things that are very relevant and we can kind of know what's, what's going on. So let's look at chapter two, and this is the first of seven letters to seven churches. And the first one is the church of Ephesus. It says this in verse one, we'll read the whole letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So this is Jesus talking, because we just saw Jesus in chapter one doing this, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then, from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So we have this first letter. John 
is asked to write. Jesus is speaking. We hear that because we see the same image of the person in chapter one talking, and we're explained that this is basically Jesus holding these seven stars, and he's walking through, walking among the seven golden lampstands. Now, he holds these churches. He's, he's walking among them like he's, he's present with them. I, I love that imagery, if you think about it. So he's not removed from his churches. He is present in the midst of it. The Holy Spirit's present in the midst of those churches, but Jesus cares about his churches. And so he's writing to them and he's saying, hey, this is, this is great. You're doing this, and, 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 but you need to do this, that type of thing. So remember, each letter has four sort of uh, parts to it that are very important. Each letter has the strength of the church, what's going on, like why, why are they strong, and, and Jesus shares that. And then there's always a failure of the church, okay, that's usually said. And we're going to see one today that, don't have, that doesn't have a failure. And then there is the instruction to the church. What should the church do now in light of that failure? And then you will always see a reward if you do that. Okay, so that's the pattern that we get throughout these letters. So, verse 1, again, we figure out Jesus is talking. Verse 2 and 3, it says, okay, this is the, your strength. This is what you've got going for you, okay? You work hard. You, you, are, you're, you endure with patience. You reject evil. You persevere for the faith. And then verse four pops up, but I, I have this against you. So this is where they're failing. This is where they're missing the mark, okay? Or you could say even sinning. Now, that's what missing the mark means, right? So they're sinning in these ways. They're, they have forgotten. They have forsaken even, which is kind of strong words, you could say, but abandon the first love, their first love, which is ultimately him which is Jesus who is speaking. It's, it's you've abandoned the, the faith, the love of Christ, the good news for something different, for other things that have taken you away from basically concentrating on me and enduring in faith, or, or maybe you've made church something different. Think about that. Church is following Christ has become religiosity, has been doing the right thing. It's not about the love and grace of God anymore. Or maybe church or worship has become something more than just worshiping God for what he has done, right? It has to be in this way or has to be in that way or it's a religiosity to it instead of what God has done, what God's doing and what God will do. And so he gives some instructions in verse five and says, okay, what you need to do is when you need to repent. You need to repent. And that is one of the main themes of Revelation. That's the apocalyptic literature theme, is that it's calling people to repent, to turn away from what they're looking at and what they're doing and move in a new direction. So we hear basically a theme in this first letter of repent, uh, remember, repent, and do. It's kind of the instructions here is remember, repent, and do. So do good works, right? Remember your first love, then repent of what you're doing, and then go do these things that you did first. And so we could guess at some of those things. I just always like to go back. That's a spiritual matter. That's a, they don't, they've lacked the passion for the relationship and love they had for Christ that drove them in their fellowship with God and what they were doing. Any, any thoughts, any, any questions just kind of already anything you have, anybody have anything? Okay. Um, so he says, if not, if you don't, if you don't repent, I'm going to actually remove your lampstand. And, and we talked about how the lampstand was this reflection of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church, the, the empowering presence of God in the church. And so I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove my Holy Spirit from your church. Thus, you are just going to be a building or a gathering of people, but you're not going to be one of my churches anymore. And that's a scary thing to think about. Um, that would be a scary thing for 
a pastor. That's a scary thing for a member of a church. That's scary for anybody to say, man, my church is, has kind of gone off the beaten path. And it's not a moral thing. It's a literally they have lost the passion they had for Christ and the gospel and the good news. And so that is a scary place to be because we talked about it earlier in the day in my last study with the men that it's like um, you're, you know, grace. We're going to talk about grace some today, but it's like, especially with the Nicolaitans or whatever, but they've, they've gone to this place in their life to where they're in the room with God and they have just chosen to kind of turn their back and do their own thing. And they, they're still there. God still loves them, but it's like, they're just not interested anymore in, in, in the very thing at the very heart of what makes them a church. And that, and that's, again, is a scary thing. So we hear this Nicolaitan or Nicolaitans or whatever terminology within your Bible has, but they believed, that's why it's so important, they believed that uh, these folks did, that God gave his grace, okay, by through the death of Jesus Christ on a cross, and that covers everything, which is true, it does cover everything, but their reaction is, is that they can do whatever they want to do. They can behave in any way they want to behave. It's, it's like Paul saying, you know, just because you got grace, you don't just go out and sin. So grace may abound. Right. And so that's, what's going on. They actually teach this within the church. And Jesus says in his words, pretty harsh is, which I also hate. So, that's troublesome a lot of times. We think, well, doesn't God's grace cover everything? And doesn't God pursue us as Wesleyans? We understand prevenient grace, and prevenient grace is that grace that woos us and, and, and is constantly sort of running after us. And doesn't that pursue us still as a Christian? So these are Christians that are being spoken to. These are folks that, that have the grace of God in their life, that they've had the forgiveness of, of Christ in their life. They understand all that. But then they've kind of chosen to kind of turn their back on God's ways, and they're just doing their own thing. Not all the church, but some of the people who believe this. And that's what these folks believed. And that wasn't right. Because we've talked about it in sermons in the last couple of weeks, is grace requires a response from us. And that response is then that you seek to live a godly-like life. We're not going to always get it right. We're going to sin. And, and that's why there's forgiveness. There's mercy. There's compassion. God's slow to anger. But when you basically just say, I'm all good. I got fire insurance now because I got Jesus and I can just go live whatever the way I want. That's kind of where we're at with this, this group. Okay. Any questions, any, any thoughts? Cause that drives, we're going to hear about this group in a couple of letters as well. Anybody else have anything? <clears throat> so in verse seven, it says, let anyone who has an ear to what the spirit is saying to the church ear, listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. So you, you have this line that we're going to hear throughout these letters at the end of these letters. And it's important for us to understand this is not just for this church in Ephesus, right? This is the church really global. And, it, and it's even relevant for us 2,000 years later or so. Now, let me kind of break down Ephesus for you. This is the, the cultural environment that this church uh, finds itself in, okay? This was the largest, most important city in the Roman Empire other than Rome, okay? It, especially Asia Minor, okay? Asia Minor, and only Rome was more influential within the Roman Empire. This was the center of trade. This was uh, the center of learning for the Greeks and some Jews, and so there was a Jewish population there as well. The Greeks called this the, the mouth of Asia, as be, you can see on your little map handout, the seven churches of Revelation, you can see where Ephesus lies right there, okay? And it's sort of the first closest one to Patmos, where John is. It's a perfect place to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's a free city. 
And what does it mean to be a free city? It means that they're loyal to Rome and the empire. So there's not a heavy concentration of troops there. Okay, and that's that's way different than Jerusalem because Jerusalem had a heavy concentration of troops because they were not very loyal to Rome. They were just they were under Rome's control. But this folks, this is a free city. Okay, we're going to see some other other free cities as well. There's also the uh, center, uh, the really it was the center of Diana worship. Okay, and so there was this huge temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world during that time. They, they said there was a hundred large columns that held this temple up. It's absolutely beautiful. And this, uh, it, it, it was, it sort of loomed over the city, you know, and loomed over all these churches as well. And so this was a huge place of pagan worship. And the message, you could summarize what we've kind of looked at and we've gone through. The message summary could be this, don't give up, Okay, don't give up on, on, go back to the basics. Okay, get in gear. Okay, so don't give up, go back to the basics, get in gear. Now, all of us as Christians, we could hear that and we could go that, we need that word of encouragement, right? And, and we also need that word of encouragement within a church. Let's, let's go back, let's, let's not give up in the midst of this. Let's go back to some basics and let's just get going forward. So it's important to understand that. And again, the reward of the church is you get to eat from the tree of life. You get to, you get to be a part of paradise. You get to be a, uh, in this place of righteousness because you have remained faithful. Okay. And we have this picture of the garden of Eden again, and you get to, you, you didn't turn your back on me. You remain faithful. So that's important. So that's the, that's the letter to Ephesus. Any other, anybody else have anything? You'll have to unmute yourself. And any thoughts? Okay. Um, we lost our connection for a minute, but Dave was okay. trying to ask about, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Go for it. He was trying to ask about the fact that uh, Jesus used the word hate. And then I know in, in Psalms, Dave uses that too. David uses that too in one of his Psalms. And, so can you address that? Because that's kind of like not an attribute we think, uh, or emotion, I guess, that we feel he even possesses. Right. Uh, and right. then secondly, uh, may I ask, what version of the Bible are you using, tra translation? We've talked about that a little bit. This is an old copy that I've had that I use because it's formatted for doing Bible studies. And I keep thinking it's the NIV but um, some of y'all might have the NIV and it's not that. So I, I have to look it up, but um, it uh, sounds crazy, but I have my notes and it's formatted in a particular way. And I've taught this probably beginning 15 years ago. And so that's, that's some of uh, my issues. Marty, yes. I'm using the NRSV and yours seems to be very similar. So okay, that good. It. So maybe it's the, the NRSV or the, uh, the RSV. So it was probably one of those uh, coming out of uh, seminary time. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Well, so I'm asking, I'm, I'm real fit quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we've been using the NIV ever since we moved here and joined the church. Yeah. And yes. I've been reading some negative things about it and that they've been mm -hmm. talking about the American Standard Version had, uh, is more uh, accurate. Uh, can uh, Maybe another time you can discuss that. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's just different. Uh, when we're in seminary, we use the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Personally, when I read that a lot, it's it's not my favorite version. So uh, uh, the NIV is one of my favorite versions. Also, I use and preach from the NLT, which is more of a paraphrase. The uh, New American Standard Version, I guess, or it, it's, uh, they say it's somewhat more true to the to Greek and the Hebrew, but that's really what the NRSV is as well. So um, I wouldn't address it too much further than that because some of that is just scholars arguing and marketing schemes to get you to buy a new Bible. So, um, 
I think the best Bible is the one that you can read and sort of kind of understand. So I don't read the King James version because I don't think anybody can understand the these and thous and stuff. So um, hate, it is a strong word. Uh, it's literally, you could say like antichrist. Um, so the things that are against Christ, he really does have a very strong feeling about, um, you know, we're going to hear, you know, vomit out of my mouth. I mean, there's just this, again, we're in apocalyptic literature. This is some strong imagery and strong language. And so we don't think of God having a hate, but a deep, deep, deep dislike because what it's done that teaching is basically reduced Christ's death on a cross to universalism, which is uh, an understanding that I agree we've all been saved by Jesus, you know, 2,000 years ago on a cross, but there is a response. We are not robots. We always have to respond to the grace and the love and even the death of Christ on a cross and understanding, you know, that he is a uh, Lord and savior in our life. And so we not only need to confess, profess that with our minds, our hearts, our lot, we have to actually have to live that out. And so part of the issue with this group was, is they were saying, okay, now that Jesus did that, you can just do whatever you want to do. You can continue in your, you know, particular lifestyle that might not be so suited to honoring where God wants you to go. And you can see this is sort of a Holy Spirit problem with this church as well. To be influenced by those folks is like, uh, it, it's like, okay, the leading of the Spirit has gone away and it's sort of leading their own personal lifestyle is leading the way. It's their own likes and their own desires. So it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a deep, deep stuff. And to God to sort of use the word hate is uh, alarming sometimes to us, but strong words, strong words and imagery in, in Revelation. Good question. I don't know if that's going to answer it, but uh, that's my two cents on it. So let's, Marty, yes. can I? Uh, yes, but God hates a lot of things. He hates evil. He hates pride. He hates divorce. You know, he doesn't like rebellious people. So I personally don't have a problem with the, the word saying, God hates this because this is what we should hate also. So, um, because we live in a fallen world and, um, you know, he hates pride. He hates divorce. It's, it's, he's said it over and over and over again. So I personally don't have a, and it doesn't diminish God to me at all. He wants us all to be obedient children. Uh, he's a jealous God. Um, mm -hmm. All the things that a lot of people want to say, well, this is not my image. It's still a good image to me uh, mm -hmm. because he is a holy God. Why would mm -hmm. he not hate things that are rebellion, that is rebellious? So mm -hmm. I personally don't have a problem with that. I still see him right. as a loving God, not, not liking or hating things that are not good. So. Mm -hmm. That's just my time. right, right. It's just the use of the word is not off. It's not often used when Jesus speaks of you know things that God doesn't really like, you know, or don't honor God. So hate is a pretty strong word. Does that mean that it's inconsistent with his character? I, I don't think so. Um, like you were saying, I, I think that God hates some stuff. It's pretty strong words, but yeah. I went, I went back to the King James version and it mm -hmm. also uses hate. Yeah, they all use it. Yeah, it they all like, use it. Mm -hmm. Be a great word study. I haven't really spent the time on it. So uh, um, if you want to study it, let us know. I might go back and add some of those things to my notes. Let's move on. Let's look at Smyrna and I'm going to read the letter and then we will, uh, We'll talk about the city uh, as that influences a lot what we're going to talk about as well. It says, and the angel of the church and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who saw that they 
who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who, ha who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. So let's talk about Smyrna. Sounds so strange to say that. Um, Smyrna sounds like a disease a little bit, but they were a rival of Ephesus. They were a beautiful city as well. They were known as what was called the Flower of Asia. You might have that in your Bible notes or a commentary. They were also a free city. There was a harbor there as well at Smyrna. There was fertile farmland all around. And so that's what made it beautiful as well. And so they had a lot of uh, food industry. This is a cultural birthplace of Homer. So there was some of that influence. There's, there's that influence as well. In 195 BC, which is later than this, they actually built a temple that actually worshiped worship of Rome. And so this was pretty loyal to the Roman Empire. And there was a strong Jewish community as well. And we hear that in this letter. So Jesus is identified as the one talking again, first and the last, you know, beginning and A to Z, Alpha and Omega was dead and that is now alive again reference to his resurrection and his eternal life that counters the narr counter narrative to, to rome being the eternal one again all these identifiers of who god is who christ is and then it says basically europe it gets into poor it says poor this is a poor church monetarily okay is what we're assuming but they're rich in faith. And so the strength of the church is that they're enduring poverty and they're rich in faith. And really there aren't any failures. There's no failure. It doesn't say I have this against you. It doesn't even say that. Okay. Now there are some Jews that are around them and in their midst that are, aren't really Jewish. And so there's some helpful encouragement when it comes to what they might be facing. We hear the word Satan used a couple of times. Uh, the name Satan, we, use, we hear devil used as well. And then there's some instructions to the church, and the instructions are remain faithful in persecution, even in the face of death, even in the face of imprisonment. And just a couple of notes. Again, devil here, typically it's used for slanderer, so there could be a group out there. This is not the, the, the horned, you know, person that we often think of. This is, this is a uh, understanding that, yes, there is evil in the world, and there are evil people, evil groups, but, but usually devil is used as some sort of slandering term. So there is a devilish slandering group out there that's going to say some things about you, cause you to be in prison, thrown in jail. And we, we see, okay, they're going to be tested for like 10 days. Is it literally 10 days? Sure. 100%. It could be 10 days. But we have to remember that numbers mean something different in apocalyptic literature sometimes. And so they're not always literal. And you could also think that at 10 is a symbolic way of meaning a short time, okay? 10 means short time or God's time, okay? In God's timing. So you will be thrown into prison and, and, and tested for some time or for, for as long as God allows it to happen type thing, okay? And there's a reward here, we hear, uh, that... The, get a crown of life that they are not going to be hurt by the second death what in the world is the second death well it's basically the spiritual death okay is it's it's like the time of judgment and you will not be hurt by the second death you will be a part of the resurrection you will be a part of eternal life those sort of things it's a reassurance of that now 
reference point here, which you probably heard before, is Jesus was always dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the ones that did not believe that there was eternity afterward. There was no afterlife. And so I always remember, remember that as sad you see. So Sadducees, they're sad because there is no afterlife. And so just a quick reference there as it's talking about the synagogue of Satan and Jews and, and those folks. So any, any thoughts, any questions, any comments there? Pretty straightforward. Again, you have uh, the devil used there. You have um, synagogue of Satan. Satan is there's there's not really a theology of Satan or doctrine. Sorry, a doctrine of Satan in the Old Testament. It's sort of a hodgepodge. And Satan in the Old Testament is is usually a tempter, tempting. Um, like a serpent, you know, tempting Adam and Eve, uh, tempting Job to give up and not be faithful. So we hear that. Now in the New Testament, there is a little bit more developed doctrine of Satan. And really Satan comes from the Hebrew word accuser. So you can think of accuser or tempter. Um, devil is the same. Uh, slanderer, you know, it's all in there. Now, when we talk about this thing a little later, we're going to meet the beast and, and things like that. And so there's some things that are the beast and some things that are the dragon. And we're going to talk all about that and try to keep all those terminologies uh, at least under, you know, clear to each and every one of us as we go through the, the book. So anybody else have anything else on that? Yeah. Yes. I would like to mm -hmm. talk about, it says he who overcomes will not be hurt at mm -hmm. all by the second death. Um, mm -hmm. I remember someone once saying, unbelievers only meet to part again, Christians only part to meet again. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, uh, we, you know, I always kind of took that literally because mm -hmm. for unbelievers, there will be a second death. Mm -hmm. and, but for believers, we won't experience a second death. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of took that li literally. Um, because I think there's some literalness to that, that okay. understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There, there can be some literal, you can, you can do that. Um, there is, we're going to get into some more of that, but that's, that's legit. Um, we, we don't have all the answers, especially with the, you know, we don't live in this time. But as we look at the second death, that's the understanding that, that you will not spiritually die. You will not cease to exist. You know, you will, you will move on. Now, what does that mean for everybody else? That's different. You know, that's probably more conversation to be had. So, so let's look at the church of uh, Pergamum and this letter. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, which we've seen that image before. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, 
Church of Pergamum, just to remind us or to teach us what that was. It's 60 miles north of Smyrna. It's 15 miles inland. It was built on a hill. And so it was, you could say, somewhat well fortified. It was the administrative capital of Asia, Asia Minor, for the Roman Empire. So the Roman governor lived there, and he ruled all of Asia that Rome had, you know, control over. So it was the ruler of all the other cities in Asia. And you, you could think of it like Dallas-Fort Worth's bigger, and, and, and Houston's big, and San Antonio's big, and they're all bigger than Austin, but Austin is where all the politicians are. Austin is sort of the, we say, well, what does Austin say, you know? And so that's where the governor is. That's where... So it's that type of uh, scenario. It was a center of Greek culture. You've probably heard it said before and reminded that there was this beautiful, there was a 200,000 volume library there um, used to educate people. And, and it rivaled Ephesus really for pagan worship as well. There were four, they say, four major pagan cults there. And that's an important part of it. The theme, I would say, if you like wanted to wrap all this letter up in one thing is riches don't matter. Be careful who you follow is a great way of thinking about this because you have a lot of things out there that are pressing in on you. And ultimately your riches don't really matter. You know? Uh, so verse 12, we see that, sharp two-edged sword and that imagery of, of Jesus that his words are actually powerful and, and they're actually we've we would say a counter narrative to the Roman power that they're more powerful because they change the heart and they change the mind of a person and not just physically uh, oppress that person or physically conquer that person so they're more powerful but his words are powerful and it's not Jesus wandering around with a sword or the Christians got to take up their sword. And this is a spiritual matter utilizing, again, the testimony of Jesus Christ and the, the blood of the lamb. We talked about that last week or two weeks ago as well. And so it's such a very important understanding uh, for us to keep that under moving forward in things. Now, verse 13, we hear this Satan again. We, we, we hear, you know, we got devil, we got Satan, it's similar things. Satan is often used again as a tempter, the one who tempts. And so they are being tempted by all that's going on around, much like we are tempted in the modern world with everything that is around us. But the strength of this church is, is that they are loyal to Christ and they refuse to deny him. And we actually have an example that was in their midst, Antipas, was a witness or a martyr, okay, same word. He, he died for his faith in their midst. And then we get some instructions in verse 16. So, um, you know, repent. Same instructions we've been getting really from the beginning, right? The overarching theme, one of the overarching themes of Revelation is to repent. So repent. And if you don't repent, okay, I'm going to make spiritual war with the swords of my mouth, basically, with those who have seduced the church. This is not like Jesus is going to come in and have a massacre and take out everybody that disagrees with him or disagrees with the majority in the church or whatever. That's not what we're going for here. That's not the image here. This is spiritual warfare. This is God's truth is going to be actually brought into this group. And um, you can take care of it, okay, because you have the power, you're all might, you have the Holy Spirit power. And if not, I'm going to bring something special your way. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but we probably don't, there might be an issue there, okay, if, if Jesus brings it and instead of his people. So maybe there's a, um, it's just an overall warning. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, were reaffirmed, you know, the writer of Hebrews, the pastor of Hebrews basically, you know, says, you know, the word of Christ is like a sword 
And so it convicts us of sin. The word of Christ is an invitation of the gospel. The word of Christ is an assurance of our salvation, all these things. So these are, this is a powerful tool in the spiritual realm. So that's, that's what we're seeing there. Uh, any, any thoughts, any comments about any of that? I'm going to talk about 17 here in just a minute. Do I have anything? So verse 17, we, we get some cool images here too. We, we get hidden manna and we know manna was like food from God. If we're talking about spiritual realm here, um, you, you could say that this is spiritual food that's going to be given. This is hidden food. It's hidden in our hearts. It's hidden in our lives, hidden in our minds, hidden in our spirits. So this hidden manna um, to everyone who conquers, that's going to be given to them. Okay. And so if you remain faithful, you are always going to be fed and strengthened in the Holy Spirit with, you know, for that, for your life. Now, I will give you a white stone and on that white, what does, what does that mean? We've, we've learned about white. White is the color of purity, holiness. Um, you can remember throughout scripture that there have been people who have new names. Abraham, Abraham became Abraham, right? Um, Jacob became Israel. Uh, Saul became Paul. I mean, all this stuff's going on. So baptism uh, can be thought as a, as a white stone of, you know, it's like this, you have a new name in Christ when you're baptized. And so I'm bringing you this white stone, this illustration of color of heaven, heaven and innocence and purity. And so if you, you know, for everyone who conquers against the temptations in life and, and stays true, even in the midst of persecution, all those things, I've got a new name for you. You know, what that name is, we don't know, but I have spiritual food for you. We, we feel that as well when we go through spiritual battles. So really great image there for me. Anybody have any thoughts, questions, comments? So the name written on the stone, uh, it's a uh, secret except that whoever receives the stone, uh, it's not Jesus. We don't know who it is and we're not intended to know. Right. It'd be a new name for you, most likely right it would be you would be receiving that stone you would you would get that new name so again it's a spiritual renewal you could say or it's a i don't know that's that's kind of how we can look back we can try to interpret the code we can look back in old testament and some of the new testament writings and we just know that god gives new names to those who have been spiritually transformed or spiritually grow so i would say that's the 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 healthiest biblical reference and understanding that. So a couple of questions here. Is it possible to live as a Christian in hard circumstances? That's basically what's going on here in Pergamum. Yes, it is. We know that they're in the midst of some hard circumstances. They're, they're facing some particular teachings within the church that aren't really good. They're, they're dealing with, possible accusations of, about them outside the church that is causing them to be persecuted in some way that even leads to death for some of them. And so all this stuff's going on. It's very possible to live in hard circumstances. We often think, oh, that's where it's always, oh, the end of the world's coming. You know, we always talk about the end of the world's coming, you know, and that's what we're trying to talk about with Revelation. Maybe the end of the world's not coming. Maybe it's just you're dealing with hard circumstances like people did 2,000 years ago, right? Um, you, can, you can see the similar issues going on. You know, we're called to be different. We're called to be different from the world. That's what citizens of God means to be a citizen of God. The person who um, is not prepared to be different because they follow Christ should really never start following Christ. It, because it's going to take you down a different path and it's not going to take you down the world's path. You, you're going to be different. And a lot of times when I say that you're going to be different from the world, we often think of particular sins out there. I'm not talking about that. I'm also talking about things that we're called to love and we're called to, to offer grace to and forgiveness and, and deal with stuff. That's not of the world either because the world would rather just bring the, the sword of the spirit and literally be a sword and just hack somebody's head off. 
because they don't believe the way that they believe or they have a different uh, public or political understanding of things. And, and so we don't understand each other. And so you might remember if you've been in the church long enough in the last uh, four or five years since I've been here where I talked about vampires and zombies. And uh, why did we talk about those? Because we zombify people. Like it's so much easier just to hate people because we've said they're over there and they're, they're a bad person or they, they believe this and we zombify people. And when we do that, that really goes against what Christ wants from his people. So in second Corinthians chapter six, verse 17, you hear Paul quote something. He quotes actually some of Isaiah and some of Ezekiel. And he says, therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourself from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. Again, that, that can tie right in here. We're, we're supposed to be different. You know, this is um, be careful who you follow. Be careful what you look like. You know, don't conform to the world so much. Just all that to me can be wrapped up in what Jesus is saying to this church. So any, anybody else have any thoughts, questions, anything like that on that? Any conversation? Thinking about the Old Testament, that's what God wanted for the Israelites, you know, to be separated, that they were going to be that light for the world to follow, even though they just couldn't do it. But that's what his intention was. That's right. it. Man. Yeah, well said, well said. And and where are you sent is the question. You know, where are you called to witness? Like, this is where these Christians found themselves in Pergamum, and they were dealing with some things. They were dealing with some strange teachings. They were dealing with this, you know, um, a few things against you. You have some who hold to a teaching, basically hold, meaning like literally they're in your midst. You are allowing them to be in your midst and you've actually begin to change from your Christ-like values, your Christ-like understanding of things, and you have been sort of bought into their teaching. So a lot of this, the spiritual battle that is going on, yeah, it's, it's a knowledge, it's a, it's a head thing, it's a discipleship thing, but it's also a spiritual battle. So I asked myself, where am I sent? Where do I, where am I called to witness in the midst of where I find myself. So that's uh, very important for us in, in relevance to what's going on in the world. So let's kind of get started with the next letter and I'll, I'll go over some things. We got 10 minutes left and I don't want to get too far ahead of some of the other groups, but I, I think we can, we can trek through this next one. This is uh, verse 18 and this is the letter to, uh, Thyatira, and it says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your faith, your love, your faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to the practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Fornica uh, beyond, beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her dudes. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts and will give to each of you as your work deserves. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who has not learned, who have not learned what some called the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my work to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. 
even as I also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. So there's way too much for us probably to cover in this. This is the longest letter of all the letters. And uh, Thyatira is really, they, they say modern Turkey, Akhishar, Turkey. So I guess there's actually a city there. It's 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. You see that stuff on the map in relation to the other cities. Um, Lydia, who we meet, uh, Paul converts in Acts 16. You might have heard of this. She is from this town, okay? And so she was the one selling the purple textiles and converted by Paul. And so she's from here. Why is that relevant? Because this was dominated by trade guilds, okay? The, um, they controlled, like you could say the city controlled, was controlled by trade guilds, okay? And that comes into play here in just a moment because to work for the guilds, okay, which were, uh, you know, fabric and, and different, all these different guilds, you had to belong to a guild to work, Okay, and so to belong to a guild, then there were pagan religions associated and connected with those guilds if they were approved by the Roman Empire. So in order to actually work, you had to sort of have this sort of pagan worship thing going on as well. And that's a problem for Christians. And we hear a lot of that in here in this in this letter. So. In verse 18, we get a picture of Jesus. We hear it's the Son of God who is talking, and he has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, and we're just like creeped out by that image, right? I mean, that is like, well, who is that Jesus? I don't know that Jesus, that type of thing. And, and you know, there's a reference, there's same imagery that we will see from a standpoint of the burnished bronze and the flame of fire. It's in Daniel 10:6. I don't know if I have that exactly referenced here. Oh, yes, I do. So Daniel, again, recasted. Some of these images are recasted by John. He sees similar images, keeps consistency throughout the Bible as well. And in chapter 10, Daniel has this vision. It basically says, I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. So again, you have apocalyptic imagery and vision going on and a similarity in, in what John uh, sees and, and what Jesus looks like here. And so we have a reference probably to what Daniel saw as the, the son of God as well. And that's kind of cool to kind of tie those two things together. But you think about what does all that mean? I mean, it, it, why burnished bronze? Why does have to do with anything. Uh, a lot of times you could say that has, bronze is heavy. And so commentators would say that they have feet that are firm. Uh, Christ has feet that's firm. They have a firm foundation. They're, they're immovable. This is an immovable power of Christ. Again, the counter narrative to the power of Rome can be, you know, or power of earthly rulers. So it's very important to, to think of it that way. Uh, verse 19, we hear the strengths of the church. You know, they, they demonstrate love, they demonstrate faith, they demonstrate service, they have this patient endurance. I mean, this sounds like a great group of Christians that are really working hard, and, and they've showed consistent improvement. They've, they're, they're greater in their growth. So we, we hear they're greater than the first. And so they're, we're all called to grow. And this church is growing. This, this set of believers is growing. Now there's some failures to this church. In verse 20, we hear them 
they tolerate pagan and false teaching in their assembly. And that, that's a problem. It's not that, you know, Susie over there is teaching something wrong and she's sort of on the fringes, but they actually, for some reason, are tolerating some of that, like where they're actually teaching in their midst and they taught in to there's toleration of idolatry and, and, you know, just weird sort of immorality and, and stuff like that. Now, Jezebel is, is being tolerated. Like you go back into the Greek and you under, you have to understand, okay, what is tolerated? Okay. We tolerate a lot on, on sometimes because people grow and people change and, and people aren't perfect. And so you're going to tolerate anytime you're within a group of people, you're going to tolerate some things. Tolerate meant back then, well, especially in the Greek, this is a pretty strong word protect. And so it wasn't just, we taught, we, you're, you're protecting this person. Now, this person probably owned a business, was a very successful business woman, and success was more important, and, and they probably, maybe some worked for her, whatever it was, we're trying, to, we're trying to draw some connection here, but it was success was valued over faith, was, out, was valued over correct teaching. So that's very important to kind of understand that. And this person refuses to repent. It's not like God's like not asked this person to repent, hasn't spiritually spoken to this person. I mean, all this stuff's going on. God's patient. God's, you know, wanting this person to change and repent, but she won't do it. She won't do it. So um, the instructions of the church is, is that, you know, there's judgment coming. You should repent. Um, you should faithfully hold fast, right? Till I come and hold fast is, is sort of that sailor terminology. And so hold fast. And, and we think of, we see this imagery of bed. We see adultery. Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, it, it's really people that are in with her. They're protecting her. They, they believe her. They, and God says, I'm going to really, I'm going to strike them down. I'm going to, they're not going to be able to get away with that anymore. And again, this is a spiritual thing, or this is going to be a, a, a casting out of this person within the assembly of believers. It's going to happen. And the people that accept her false teachings. Okay. God searches for the truth as we see in verse 23, it says, I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And so he's not just like investigating all the circumstances. He is literally moving into their spirits and he's going to do that. This is going to be a deep sort of cleansing that happens. Um, any, anybody else have any thoughts on that? We're, we've got to wrap up here in a minute. Marty, I, I have a question. Yes. Is Jezebel mm -hmm. actually a person or a representation of a group of people and teachings? I, I would say it probably is a person. Um, probably is a person. It could be literally a person. Yeah. I don't know of um, a representation of the teachings or anything. I haven't, I didn't see that in any of my studies, but um, maybe it's possible, you know, but I haven't heard of that. So this would be a person in their midst. I have another comment that's kind of or a common name. I would say that it's a comment, Jezebel. You know, we we have we have issues with that name, I guess. So, yes. Uh, in each of the letters that we've looked at so far, mm -hmm. right at the very first of each one of them, is in my translation at least, are the words I know. Mm -hmm. And it, is that prominent? Is that you know, Christ's omniscience and omnipresence? Is it, is it nothing? Is it? Well, I mean, that's a great, I mean, I haven't ever had, had anybody ask that question. So that's probably some good insight on, I mean, it's, yeah, I know it's God knows. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would well, it's, say, you know, it's in mm -hmm. every letter. So everyone, yeah. it's at the very yeah. first it, after he says something and then it's, I know. And then yeah. So he has it. He has the identifier of who he is. And then it's basically God saying, I know these things about you. Don't try to, 
to, to hide from. And I, I do know these things. So could you imagine reading these if you were actually in these churches or Christians that were dealing with it? I mean, you'd be like, wow, you know, that, that, that would definitely call you to repentance. So um, there's a lot more at the end of this uh, letter. And I don't want to just push on uh, and just go over it very so quickly. So we're just going to stop right there. We'll pick up with uh, looking um, probably at verse 24. We'll, we'll just stop right there. So, uh, Pastor Marty, one comment, mm -hmm. and I just don't know sure. if this is true, but Jezebel, wasn't she in the Old Testament, the, the wife of Ahab and killed a lot, all of the prophets? So, um, you know, when I read it, I thought that the Jezebel mm -hmm. that they're talking about, uh, Jesus is talking about, would be Jezebel in the Old Testament. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're referencing the Old Testament with this. Um, I think you just have some common name language. Like, could this literally be, be a person named Susie in the midst of their congregation? Sure. We don't know that that's where we lost the code. You know, we don't know that for sure, but Jezebel has an overarching theme throughout the Bible that this is somebody who is against the ways of God. So you could say, this is just a common name. You know, this is like Sue or Stephen or, you know, whatever it is. So you could reference that that way. I wouldn't say they're, they're tying it in so much other than the image or a common name. There could be a reference there, but is it the exact same person come alive again? Like it's not that, but it's a, we, it, we see so much consistency between these uh, God's word. It, it's really good. You know, uh, a lot of times I'm not trying to, to say there's no contradiction in anything. I'm not, I don't think I have to, to really prove that in anything i just think it's so healthy the way we can look at revelation because there it's informed in a healthy way throughout old testament and new testament as well so well thank you all for your time and i pray you have a rest of the day is a great day and may you go in peace have a great week thank y'all thank you bye-bye